I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. As Christians, we do not give up our intellect. The strongest evidence and argument for the existence of God is that without a belief in God, you can't prove anything. How can the law be material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. I would say no. And can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Welcome to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and here at Revealed Apologetics, Our goal is to equip believers to defend the Christian faith, and we want to equip you to do it in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to Scripture. So sit back, relax, get your thinking caps on, and let's dive into our topic for today. All right, it looks like we're live. So, Eli, I was introduced to you by Doug uh, from Pine Creek. He told me that you were a presuppositionalist. I've been looking for a presuppositionalist to talk with about uh, their position and their arguments. Mm -hmm. And uh, so could you tell me a little bit about yourself and your position? Um, You mean like personally about myself? Uh, Sure, sure. Okay. (laughs) Well, my name is uh, Elias Ayala. Uh, My friends call me Eli. And... um, I am 36 years old. I'm married with two kids and one on the way. Uh, I am a middle school and high school teacher at a Christian private school. I am also a youth director at my church here on Long Island, New York. And uh, my interests are theology, apologetics, and a little bit of philosophy. And um, I am happy to be here. <laughs> and thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time to have the conversation. No problem. So. I've always been wanting to talk with presuppositionalists to hear their perspective because it's a really interesting perspective. So I'd like to tell you a little bit about my position, and then I'd like to hear your thoughts uh, on your thoughts on it. So let me okay. just give you my little introduction thing that I've been working on. So my current position as an atheist is that none of the arguments or evidence used by religious apologists indicate a God at all. I don't just mean them not convinced. I mean I believe they are objectively vapid and indicate nothing. They don't move the dial a single percent, a tenth of a percent, a hundredth of a percent, a thousandth of a percent. All of them collectively, when taken together, the cumulative case adds up to exactly nothing in my viewpoint. The reason I believe this is because omni-properties like all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, eternal, necessary, divine aseity, pure actuality, pure, perfect simplicity, all of those properties, those omni-properties, are de facto infinite. So you, when you add them to an explanation, it gains infinite explanatory power and scope or, or whatever criteria you want to come up with. It can just fill up and explain anything. And you can add these to any theory. So when they like a bridge of infinite length can span any chasm. And the only advantage that theism has over the naturalistic sciences are these omni-properties, because science isn't allowed to use these omni-properties because they don't have any explanatory value. 
But if we are allowed to use omni properties, the naturalistic science can also add them to scientific theories, and then they can explain anything with equal explanatory power and scope and probability as theism. Uh, so all arguments and evidence that indicate theism can also be equally answered as well by any other explanation that has omni properties, which you can add to anything like the flying spaghetti monster. Uh, deism, polytheism, pantheism, naturalistic pantheism, transtheism, diestheism, the multiverse, anything you want. So all of these have equal explanatory scope, probability, etc., or any criteria you can come up with when you add the omni properties to them, which make them the omni properties not very good to assess the truth of a theory, which is why science doesn't use them in any explanations. <clears throat> so if we allow omni properties, anything theology can answer, so can naturalistic science or any ideology. And without omni properties, anything science can't answer, neither can theology. And I can demonstrate this because any arguments or evidence you present for theism, I can show work equally or better uh, can be explained by the alternatives with that also have omnis, like naturalistic pantheism. And because of this, I think we should do away with any omni properties, which I refer to as top-down worldviews. And we should only make claims about tentative additions to human knowledge that don't have these omnis in them, which I call bottom-up worldviews like science. Um, so I think we should adopt a kind of fideism about these omni properties related to a god, just kind of a belief without evidence. <clears throat> and Did you say we should adopt we fideism? Should adopt fideism? Yeah, I think we should all adopt fideism and just say, if you want to believe in these omni properties, like all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, we can't justify those, but you can still believe in them if you want to. Okay. So that's essentially my position. Uh, what are your thoughts? Okay. Well, um, you believe Christianity is false, do you not? Or do you just refrain from making any statement in regards to its truth or falsity? Right. I wouldn't say there is no God, but I would definitely say there is no Christian God. Okay. Um, and why is that? Uh, problem of suffering, I think, is a pretty good reason to reject the idea of the Christian God. Why don't you explain that a little bit more? Uh, sure. So uh, the if there is an all-powerful, all-good being, then there would not be involuntary suffering. There is involuntary suffering. Therefore, there is not an all-good, all-powerful being. Uh, I don't see how that logically follows at all. How so? I, I don't see the conclusion following from the premises. It, it could be the case that, there, that God has a morally sufficient reason for allowing the suffering that... Uh, that does happen. So um, even if that's remotely possible, um, your conclusion wouldn't follow necessarily from those premises. Right. And I would say I can disprove that. And I could say any sufficient reason God may have can be made morally superior if you make it voluntary. Therefore, it's not possible for there to be a moral. How do you measure? How do you measure a standard of moral superiority without an objective standard to to do that with? I do have an objective standard. I wrote a model of objective morality. Okay. So if you could explain, what is your objective model for measuring what is superior morally? Uh, and something that's immoral, for example. Uh, so anything, morality is essentially any involuntary imposition of will is an immoral action. Can I just interrupt? I do apologize. Go um, for it. Can you just speak a little slowly so that I really want to follow what you're saying? Sure. So any involuntary imposition of will is an immoral action. Okay. Can you explain that in a little more simpler terms? So any, any what? Forcing someone to do something they don't consent to is immoral. Okay, and how do you know that that's immoral? Uh, moral intuition and moral progress. Okay, whose moral intuition? I don't have a moral intuition that that's true, so... Uh, everyone's human, all human nature's moral intuition. The same moral intuition used in the moral argument. You know that everyone's moral intuitions agrees with that standard of what's considered right or wrong? Oh no, many people like psychopaths don't have moral intuition, but the same moral intuition used in every moral argument for in all of philosophy I'm using. Right, but when I consider, when I consider God, 
being who he is and he creates beings uh, in his image. I don't, I don't see or intuitively, I don't intuit that it's morally wrong for a creator who owns that which he creates to do whatever he pleases with it. That's called slavery. That's by definition immoral. It's obviously by, immoral. By, who, by whose definition is it immoral? Everyone's. It's just moral no. intuition, moral progress. Well, just... not mine because I don't define that as slavery when it's in relation to God and man. So that's fine. Man, you don't have to agree with that's, the consensus. That's true. That's true. And I know. I knew we would. I knew we wouldn't agree. Um, but um, by what standard? You said everybody. Uh, so how does everybody agreeing with that as being the standard make it the standard? Well, just the best arguments we have for moral, objective morality right now are moral intuition and moral progress. That's the only kind of evidence we have. It's not great, but it's the best we've got. Well, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a valid point to say that because everyone thinks that's morally intuitive to them that that's a valid uh, standard by which to judge what God does to be morally moral or immoral. I don't, I don't see that connection at all. That's fine. You don't have to agree with it. I'm not okay. asking. So but then, so my, my position is here is that if you you said that you don't believe that it would be immoral for a God to do what he wants with the things he creates. Is that, that accurate? Uh, yeah. If God, if God created and everything belongs to him, I don't see it immoral for him to do whatever he pleases with what, with what he's made. And I would just say it's objectively, clearly a better situation where only he can't involuntarily force people who don't consent to do things that they don't want to. Like if right. you want to be a yeah. uh, part of his world and do what he wants you to, that's totally fine. But he can't, it would be objectively immoral for him to force anyone who doesn't want to, to be a part of that world and to do what he wants. According and the, to the world standard? would be a better place if ahead, every individual, the world would be a better place if every individual got to decide for themselves whether they wanted to be a part of that kind of world or a different kind of world. How do you measure uh, what is better or not better how, how would you do that objectively? That is the standard. Every individual, any involuntary imposition of will is immoral. So any world that has least involuntary imposition of will is the better world. And why should anyone follow that standard, especially people who disagree that that's the standard? If you disagree that's the standard, then you can be in your own world with involuntary impositions of will. So it's totally a possibility. Okay. All right. We'll move on from there. Thank you. And, and thank you for, for slowing down a bit because uh, you're, you're like me when I teach. I, I tend to talk a little quickly and, and people are like, what? You know? um, all right. So um, what would it take for you to, uh, to say, hey, Christianity is true? What, 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 what kind of evidence would be acceptable to you? Um, well, it depends. Like, there's a contradiction between the all-powerful and all-good things. So Christianity, in my position, is like a square circle. It's kind of impossible. Mm -hmm. But I could definitely grant that there was a being who created the universe that's potentially possible to demonstrate with evidence. It's possible to demonstrate Jesus rose from the dead with evidence. Mm -hmm. But I would still see that Christian God as a rather evil, malevolent being. Okay, so, so there would be no way for one to prove the Christian God to you since you believe that the very concept of the Christian God is um, incoherent. And you base that upon the fact that the God of Christianity violates an objective standard that you have arbitrarily set up. Because I don't, I don't see how your standard is actually a, an objective standard that can make judgments on whether what God does is right or wrong. So I don't see, I don't see a logical incompatibility with um, an all-good God and an all-powerful God. I don't, I, don't see, I don't see that as logically incompatible for the simple reason, as I stated before, that God could have morally sufficient reasons to um, to allow the suffering that he does. Now, I might not know what that reason is, but the very fact that that's even possible doesn't necessitate that there's a logical incoherency since 
to my to my knowledge, is that the idea that there is a conflict, contradictory conflict, is not a position that's widely held. <clears throat> that's why most people bring up the probabilistic problem of evil as opposed to the logical problem of evil. Right. I have a minority position on this one, but yeah, I can demonstrate that that the sufficient reason argument fails because I can subvert it by saying any potential reason God may have to allow suffering can be made morally superior by making it voluntary. Therefore, yeah, but that, that's arbitrary. You, you just, you no, it's, no, it's not. This is oh, slavery yes, is objectively immoral. Like anyone who says wrong. otherwise is objectively wrong. Well, again, that's by, by divine fiat. We trust that. That I'm, I'm okay with that. It's just it's obvious to everyone. So no, no, so, I don't. Well, it's not obvious to me since I don't see how you can just say, well, that's just objectively evil. And if I ask you, how do you know? You just say that anyone can see that it's evil. I don't. Right. I don't. If you can't, if you don't intuitively understand that torturing babies is wrong and that slavery is wrong and that harming people is wrong, then right. I mean that's kind of on you. I can't really help you with that one. It's, yeah, it's, it's obvious that's enough intuitionally that say, yep, this is obviously immoral. Yeah. This is obviously objectively immoral. Right now, you are you are sure that my position as a Christian is that in the cases you just brought up, I do uh, think those are immoral, but I don't equate the situation between God and man. As uh, as those particular situations, you just uh, assume that. I don't. Um, I, I don't well, think really done, I don't think, I'm sorry. Can I just finish my thought? I, yeah, sure. Okay, sorry. I don't consider torturing babies for fun on par with God um, creating uh, humanity and making stipulations on humanity and moral laws that He requires them to follow. I don't see how that is equivalent to uh, to slavery. Now, say for example. You still consider that slavery. Okay. How can you judge the moral character of, if we grant Christianity, an omnipotent being who is himself the standard of right and wrong? How could you, within that worldview, make a moral judgment upon the one who is actually the standard? Uh, you the dilemma. It doesn't, it can't be the moral standard. It's not even possible. Okay. Why don't you unpack that for me a little? I wanted to talk more about presuppositionalism more than the. Well, we're engaging in presuppositionalism right now because I'm asking these questions because I think you're you're um, you're bringing a lot of assumptions into the very reasons why you reject the coherency of Christianity. So this is, in a sense, presuppositionalism. I'm trying to apply it to your specific objections. Well, I've done like entire videos on justifying my morality, and it's it is my unique viewpoint. It's kind of hard to go into in detail in a short time period. Okay. But Yes, I do have justifications for it, and essentially, killing babies is always wrong, hundred percent. Don't ever amen. do it. Yes, amen. God killed babies. God is immoral. Done. Uh, no, that did, there, there, there again. You are mixing uh, categories. Now, no, God flooded the earth. God drowned millions of babies. Yes, I know. I know the rhetorical. Uh, uh, well, so, I mean, from that, for me, is just sufficient to say, nope, it's not impossible. It's not right. even possible. It's done. Right. So, with, mean, no, with, anything, no moral, with no objective moral standard. Okay. I have an, remember, I have an objective moral standard. That's my, no, Well, if it's what you just said, I don't see how it's objective. But if you'd like to move oh, on, good. Wait, you don't see how killing babies is immoral? No, that's not what I said. Because if anyone knows, Christians believe that killing babies, if, if I kill a baby, that's an, immoral, that's an immoral act because I violated a command of God. Right, and I'd say that killing babies is always immoral, no matter who does it, including God, which means... God killed babies. Right. God you presuppose a moral standard that is above God, which is in, which is a contradiction in terms if you are reasoning within a Christian worldview. Now, if you're not reasoning within a Christian worldview, then you're bringing a moral accusation upon the Christian worldview. And there's a problem with arguing uh, a worldview while throwing sticks outside that worldview. What you need to do is hypothetically grant my worldview and show a logical inconsistency within that worldview to show that there's a problem. And the reason for this is that presuppositional apologetics 
doesn't engage uh, a tit-for-tat argument over evidence. We are setting principles against principles, foundations against foundations. So everything you say, from your perspective, I'm going to reject because I have a completely different interpretive grid. Likewise, any evidence that I can give from my particular perspective, you're going to reject because you have a different interpretive grid. So there, at that point, we need to engage in uh, internal critique of worldviews. Otherwise, we'll just be talking past each other. Right. So my argument was that killing babies is always immoral, no matter what, independent of God. Whether God exists or not, it's immoral. It's a it's moral above, above and beyond God, above and beyond everything. It can't ever be made moral. It's always right. immoral. So God did it. God's immoral. Yeah. That 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 again. That whole system presupposes a standard of morality that is over God, which I think is incoherent when we're talking about a God who is the source and standard of all things. If I grant the truth or possibility of that position you just expressed. I'm not granting you uh, a proper, well, I don't think you have a proper understanding of what Christians mean when we say God. From my, my, from my perspective, God is ex-lex. He's, he's above the law. He's a standard of the law. So he can't violate the law since to violate the law is to violate a command. God does not issue commands to himself. And so when he acts in various ways, he does not violate any command. Right, right. So, so my argument is, is that from my perspective, uh, it's clearly obvious that killing babies is wrong, and there's nothing that can justify that ever, no matter what. So even if God was the standard, if he kills a baby, it's still wrong. Because okay. our moral intuitions just show killing babies is always wrong, no matter what. You don't get an option. You don't get an out. It doesn't matter if God's the standard. If God does it, God's moral. Because yeah, it, well, so, so that's, yeah, I don't see how that logically entails from, from your position. But if you if that's your position, then um, I, I would we would just disagree at that point. I don't think right. what you're saying is logically valid when you consider the nature of worldview critique. You're just assuming your worldview and then imposing how you define those things onto my worldview, and I actually reject those premises that you that you used to describe morality, obligation, and the nature of God and things like that. So if you'd like to move on, we could. If you don't, if you want to finish a thought, you can, you can do that as well. Yeah, I'd like to move on because, I mean, this is why it's harder to go into morality because for me, it's it's obvious that killing babies is wrong and nothing can ever justify that. Same, no. same for me. Same for so, me, yeah. So if God does it, God's immoral and there's no right. no That's out, a logical no, thought. No, there we go. No okay. logical way out of that. Sure. Well, I disagree with you, but we can move on to a next uh, next segment there if you'd like. All right. So could you give me the presuppositionalist approach to addressing the arguments? The presuppositional approach to addressing the arguments. Like, I don't know what that means. So they like, um, you start with God, you start with the belief that there is a God and that's, it's, that's required to have knowledge or something like that. I would say that the Christian worldview is the necessary prerequisite for, uh, intelligibility, which I'm sure you're familiar with that phraseology. So in other words, the world, the Christian worldview is the context in which knowledge makes sense. If you deny the Christian worldview, I would argue that you're stuck in some form of skepticism, which would make everything that you say, science, philosophically, history, and all that kind of stuff, would give it no no basis to be justified in believing those things. So why can't I just presuppose a different God and say that that's the basis? Yeah, you could, and that's where we would go into worldview analysis. So, for example, one of the criticisms— what, what Why would we go into worldview analysis? Why is that relevant? Right, because—well, here's the thing. the the One of the criticisms of presuppositional, uh, presuppositional method— is that it works well, now you're gonna disagree with this and that, that's fine, but it works well against the atheist perspective, but what happens when you have a another theistic position? And so we would engage in, in worldview analysis. Well, let's, let's hear the Muslim position. And we would ask the same questions. Does the worldview of the Quran provide the necessary preconditions of intelligibility? And as I would interact with a Muslim, we would ask certain questions just as I would ask you questions 
to pull out your foundations and see if it actually provides the necessary preconditions for intelligibility. And I'm saying that the, it's the Muslim God doesn't, the Mormon God doesn't. And of course, we'd have to get into more details to flesh that out. All right, so let, let me go with naturalistic pantheism, just an eternal, mm -hmm. all-powerful nature, and say I'm going to presuppose naturalistic pantheism and that intelligibility is a function of the universe just like gravity. It's the law of gravity. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what, 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 is, what is that? What is naturalistic pantheism? How would you define it? Eternal, all-powerful nature, just God without the consciousness, essentially. Eternal, powerful nature. And, eternal, all-powerful. Okay, and how, do, and how would you know that this is the foundation of reality, this, this naturalistic pantheism? Uh, how do you know God is? I'm sorry? How do you know that uh, God is? By the impossibility of the contrary. I'm asking these questions because I think the concept of naturalistic pantheism is incoherent. And okay, I just want so then, to I, then I would say that I know it because of the impossibility of the contrary. Yeah, but you can't, you can't prove something transcendental in the same fashion since the thing that you're positing has not in any way revealed itself. So there's no connection to the noumenal aspect, that foundation of naturalistic pantheism to the particulars, you as an individual. You see, this was the problem with Plato when he had the realm of ideals and the realm of the particulars. He had no way of bridging the, 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 uh, the ideals with the particulars because he lacked the revelatory God. Wait, that's, what is, what that is Christianity, the that's an element that Christianity has in that we can be connected to the noumenal by a revelation to those that are part of the particular. What does revelation have to do with truth? Like you can have truth, like there could be a naturalistic pantheism that didn't revel, that had no revelation and still be true. So you don't need the revelation. Right. Well, you're saying could be, and so that presupposes possibility. Now within the Christian worldview, God is so foundational and necessary that that which is possible is actually based on God himself. Possibility exists within my worldview under God as opposed to over God. And what I mean by that is that God sets the parameters for what's possible and impossible. If I were to assume that there is a possibility that stands over God, then within my worldview, I would be affirming something more ultimate than God, namely contingency and possibility, which is inconsistent with my worldview. That's why I say the God of Christianity is necessarily uh, necessarily true. All right. So I would just say that in my worldview, naturalistic pantheism is the measure of all things that are possible. And suppose something outside of it is possible would be outside of my worldview, mm -hmm. essentially just mirroring everything you said about naturalistic pantheism. So I don't need any revelation for that. Right. Well, right. Or just, yes, like, you why do. do you need? Sure. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Can you repeat the the? I know. I, I understand what you're trying to do. You're trying to um, you're trying to show that anything that I can say from my position, you can just posit from your position. And what I'm trying to show is that's an illegitimate move because revelation is a necessary aspect of that. Without a revelatory aspect, which would also include the personal aspect, there'd be no way for you to know if that's the case. And so you still have contingency. That is the foundation of that perspective. Whereas on my perspective, contingency doesn't stand over my God. My God is the very standard upon which probability and impossibility and possibility are measured. So I don't understand anything you just said there. So I, you <laughs> said that you need revelation for something. Why do you need the revelation? Because revelation, yeah, revelation. Like, like there's a difference between epistemology and ontology. Knowing something is true and something mm -hmm. actually being true. Something yeah, can be true independent of us knowing it's true. So you don't. So the revelation is just irrelevant from the truth of the thing. Like, no, I don't think it's irrelevant. I think from the Christian perspective, revelation is what connects the noumenal world to the world of particulars. Without, without, that, without that bridge, uh, your guess is as good as mine. Now, practically speaking, I would assume that perhaps you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you would hold to some form of practical knowledge because your worldview doesn't warrant a, um, I guess, a metaphysical understanding of the way things actually are. 
so we can talk practically just from conversation to conversation, but when we're talking presuppositionalism, then we're getting straight to the foundations, whereas there is a difference between epistemology and ontology or metaphysics. I would say they both stand into a feedback loop relationship that if the world is a certain way, metaphysics, then that is connected to epistemology, whether we can, can we know things. If you don't have a view of reality, then how do you know the particulars that you claim to know? Because what you know presupposes the world is a particular way. So metaphysics presupposes epistemology, and epistemology presupposes ontology or metaphysics. Right, so I'm still not seeing the relevance of revelation here. So things can be true independent of us knowing they're true. Well, things can, yeah, uh, sure. I don't so, know. So I can presuppose something without revelation, and it can be true. It could be true, but without the revelation, you have no justification for, for knowing it to be true. I believe that's, you know a lot that, of That's it. what presupposition means. A presupposition is an argument that isn't justified. If it's justified, it's not a presupposition. Uh, well, it depends on the nature of the presupposition you're speaking. Axioms are presuppositions, and then right. I, could have, I could have secondary presuppositions. We, ha we have to make sure we, we're making a differentiation between axioms, fundamental starting points, or presuppositions, which are certain things we presuppose throughout the chain of our web of beliefs. What, what do you think the word presuppose means? It is to presuppose something. Sure. I understand what pres. I mean, I mean, I'm a presupposition. So, so, <laughs> I would hope I know what a presupposition is. Presuppose something means it's it's already unjustified. You don't have a justification for it. If, okay. it, if, 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 if your justification is revelation, then it's not a presupposition anymore. It stops being a presupposition if you say it's justified. Well, let me see if I can word it. If I can word it this way. So, okay. So you have presuppositions. I would say that the nature of the presuppositions you have do not provide the necessary ingredients for intelligibility of human experience. What do you mean? How so? Well, whatever your presuppositions are, they're not my presuppositions, which I think are the foundation, if I'm talking about my ultimate foundation. So my claim is that whatever you're presupposing is not, it does not provide a, a coherent worldview perspective upon which you can build a, uh, an epistemology without, without running into a complete and utter skepticism. Sure it does. Why does it not do that? Show me the problem. Well, well that's my claim. Well, let's talk about it. What is your epistemology and how do you know what you know? Okay, I think before I am. Apologize before, beforehand, since now when we talk about epistemology, and this is one of the things that people hate about presuppositionalism, is that you know I'm going to ask you how do you know how do you know how do you know, and I don't mean to do that on you know, uh, I don't mean to do that to be annoying. Uh, oh, but oh I, I'm here. I want you here to do that. I want to. I want to experience what it's like to have those kind of conversations. So <laughs> it's really annoying talking to a presuppositionalist. I mean, I, if you look at some of the debates, it, it can be frustrating. So I apologize for uh, for the listeners that will have to put up with this. But uh, uh, yeah, so so I think therefore I am. Um, this is Rene Descartes' cogito ergo sum. Uh, um, are you familiar with Bertrand Russell's critique of of that syllogism? Yeah, he said, "What what is the I referring to?" Yeah. So uh, he also he also um, pointed out that it's uh, fallaciously circular because no he, he did not he never said that I can give you every quote he said he never okay. never ever said that and I would like that quote if you can and I do mean that well, no no I mean he I can't give you a quote of something he didn't say he he never said that he never okay. said it was okay I, I thought I thought you said you had a uh, that you can prove that by show, document that's fine um, all right well so then let's explore that let's explore that so um, so I think therefore I am. Uh, as, as, let's ask the question then. What what is I? No idea. I just know that whatever is the thinking is occurring, and that thinking is me. I don't know what I am. I could well, be a product well, of reality. I could be. 
You go oh, ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I could be a product of reality, like materialism, so that the thinking is a product of some interaction in reality, or thinking and reality could be two separate things, like dualism, where you have uh, conscious experience and material things, and they're separate, or reality could be a product of my mind, kind of like idealism. Any of those could be the case. So I don't know exactly what the I is, but I do know I exist. Well, that well, that doesn't follow because you just said before, thinking is occurring. Right. And from the from the premise, thinking is occurring. It does not logically follow that. Therefore, I am the one that's thinking. You can't. No, I am the. Th I, I am the thinking. The thinking and I are the same things. They're they're. Well, well, well. No, there's thinking that's occurring. What I'm asking is, what is the I? Because you presuppose a particular view of existence. I want to know what you what you believe. About no, no, what no, 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 no. The thinking is the eye. The eye and the thinking, you can switch them. They're totally the same thing. They're completely synonymous. But I'm asking you, uh, because I, I, wanna, I want to try to understand your position, is that when you refer to I, that presupposes some view of identity, it seems. And I want to get to what you believe about identity. No, no. Remember, I just said that it could be that I am a product of reality, like materialism, or it could be that I and reality are separate, like dualism, or it could be that reality is a product of me, like idealism. Any of those are possible. Okay. I haven't taken a stance of which one. It makes no difference which one is the case sure. because I still okay. exist in all of them. So if you're a product of the material world, um, what differentiates you from other material objects? Uh, in other words, what makes you you? I, I, that's what I'm, I'm unclear as to what you think in terms of what, uh, what I means. I mean, are you a pure materialist in regards to persons? I mean, that has implications in terms of identity and things like that. I don't know where you stand. And if you don't give me enough information, there's really nothing I can say since I don't know what position you hold and I don't want to shoot bullets in the dark. Well, none of that is relevant to my position because my position is just, I think, therefore I am. No, so it's, relevant to, it's relevant if you're asking me to, well, I think therefore I am, respond to it. Well, I can't respond to it if you don't give me enough information. So right, I really right. Your, your argument was that my epistemology can't offer, or my my model of reality, my metaphysics can't offer us a grounds for epistemology, something like that, right? I'm, I'm saying that your worldview cannot provide the preconditions for intelligibility. Right. Even so, if I were to grant you, let's say, let's say I were to grant you your existence, if we can just uh, skip that point. Um, how do you logically deduce anything else from that? There's some difference between my imagination and my experience. I'm sorry? There is some difference between my imagination and my experience. Like if I imagine a unicorn, I don't see a unicorn. How do, you, how do you know there's a difference? What is your standard to differentiate? Because I'm imagining a unicorn and I don't see a unicorn. Yes, but that presupposes that you already have a standard to differentiate what you think you're imagining and what's actually the case. So we get into the issue of, um, um, I hate getting into this. No, 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 no that's, that's entailed in the I think, therefore I am. Because I'm, I'm all talking about self-referential experience here. If I am experiencing one thing but not experiencing another thing, that necessitates a difference. So okay. it's entailed in that in that. Okay, so, so let me get back to the original question there. So how do you build a worldview from I think, therefore I am? Okay, so there's some difference. What? That provide the necessary preconditions for intelligibility and knowledge. So, the, so I think, therefore I am, I exist. Mm -hmm. I exist and reality exists, and there's some, some relation between these. I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And there's some difference between my imagination and my experience. And so okay. we need some criteria to differentiate between the imagination and the experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so then we build this criteria. Now, I would just go, science is the criteria I'm going to go with. And with science, I can filter things out and say, these are the imaginary things and these are the experiential things. Okay, so science, so, uh, so, so why don't you tell me a little bit more about that? So science is um, an epistemological tool for you? Yeah, it's just a way to tell the difference between things in our imagination and things in their experience. 
Okay, and the conclusions you derive from science, could you know them, th those conclusions to be true? And that they actually reflect reality? Uh, they reflect the difference between my imagination and my experience. They don't necessarily reflect reality. They, re they reflect the difference between my imagination and my experience. Okay, uh, but I, then how, how from that do you use that as an epistemological tool to gain knowledge then? Because you're not really telling me much in terms of, well, it's a tool to help me differentiate between, what would you say, that imagination and what? Imagination and experience. Imagination. So and empirical, like empirical sense experience. Right, right. So, so how does that get, are you, are, would you say that, that science doesn't get you knowledge, it just helps you differentiate between uh, imagination and, and experience? Well, that is knowledge. So like if I said, it appears to me that I am holding a cup, like mm -hmm. I could be in the matrix and the cup doesn't exist. Okay. But it still appears to me I'm holding the cup. So the statement, it appears to me I'm holding the cup is true. It's knowledge. Even if I'm in the matrix, it right. can't be false. But you can't, well, well, wait, you can't say it can't be false. I would say that you don't know if that's true. Since if you could be, if you could be in the matrix, uh, practically speaking, yes, you're experiencing a cup, but you have no way of knowing that that's actually the case. And so from well, that remember what I said, I said, it appears to me as if sure. I am holding a cup. Yes, but it the only thing it, that's required for it to be true is that it is that my sensations are the, the visual image I have of the world is producing this image. So it doesn't actually need to be true that the cup exists. All that needs to be true is that I see a cup. That's right. That's right. I'm not disagreeing with that. I understand what you're saying. I'm saying is that if you see a cup, that's not the same as there actually being a cup. And so you're right. 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 I think you're I missing the point just a little bit. So okay, I just apologize. That's when okay. I say it appears to me I am holding a cup, that statement is objectively true. That is objectively true knowledge, independent of the existence of the cup. The, the, the cup doesn't need to exist sure. for that statement to be true. Okay. So I have knowledge of the world just in that statement. Right. Okay, so let's let's back up a little bit then. So the, the process of science and the conclusions that you draw that would appear to you, um, there are other fundamental assumptions that are being made in there that I'd like to see if you can justify within your perspective. So let's move along to uh, a, a topic that I'm sure you're familiar with, um, is the issue of induction. Um, how do you justify induction within your worldview, given that, um, I mean, it seems to me that you're only, you can only get what appears, so you can never know from your perspective what is actually the case. That might not be a big deal for you. You might right. say, oh, that's fine. Um, but uh, how do you justify induction? The idea that, and I know you know what induction is, but just for people listening, is the idea that the future will be like the past because it's always been that way in the past in our experience. Right, so it appears to science that induction works, just like it appears to me that I am holding a cup. But it doesn't necessarily work. You could be wrong right. about everything you, you conclude regards to, in regards to that process, right? Right, but it is still objectively true that it appears to science that induction works, just right. like it but appears to me that I'm holding a cup. But appearance, appearance is different than actual knowledge, so you're stuck with, you're stuck with appearance. Oh, I apologize, it's got to interrupt again. Remember, remember, I can still have knowledge, objectively true knowledge, that it appears to me I'm holding but a you'd cup. Have no objectively true yes. knowledge. I understand, but you have no justification for believing that that's actually the case in every proposition that you would hold as a result of the process. Right, have, right. It doesn't it, tell me if the cup exists. It only tells right. me that it's... The only justification that you would have is things appear to be a certain way. Right. And I would say that's, that's a, that's, that particular view right there does not provide the preconditions for knowing anything about the nature of reality unless you are saying that the nature of reality is impossible to know. Well, remember, if I can have a single objective fact there and said it appears to me I'm holding a cup, that is knowledge of the objective reality. 
I, well, is, again, I'm, I'm going to get into the, I don't want to get back into the whole I exist thing. I think there are issues there, uh, but I, I, I want to just assume that I can grant you that for the sake of discussion. Um, but when you say it's true that it appears, even if I grant you that, um, are you saying that it is impossible to know the true nature of reality? Are we only relegated to appearance? Um, so far in what I've presented, yes, we're only relegated to experience. But that experience mm -hmm. is itself a fact about objective reality. All right, cool. All right. But but is that the only fact you can know about objective reality? Namely, so, that, namely that the only thing we can know is that things appear to us a certain way. We can know the differences between the way they appear. But that's that's it right there. You said we don't have the relevant preconditions for intelligibility, but I just gave you all the relevant preconditions needed for intelligibility. Well, uh, well, again, if we even even if we even if I granted you that, you can build you can build no knowledge claims apart from that that tell us anything about the, the the way the world is. So everything you say could, in principle, be wrong, even though it's not wrong that things appear to you a certain way. You just contradicted yourself. Everything. You know? So so again, intelligibility. The your your objection was was that my metaphysical theory does not give us the grounds to have a, an epistemology. Or explanation of intelligibility, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're saying, you're saying. Let me see if I get if I get this here. So you're saying, uh, I'm saying that, that your worldview does not provide the necessary preconditions of intelligibility. And what, I, what, is, what does intelligibility mean? Give me a definition of intelligibility. Well, I would say that um, your worldview, if true, if true, and the principles were applied, we couldn't know anything with any uh, coherence. Now, granted, I do admit. I understand what you're saying, that it is objectively true to you that certain things appear to you, but that would push us back into the point that I didn't pursue further, which was the whole issue of, of um, existence. Now, if you don't understand what it means to exist, you're not giving me enough information in regards to your view of that that I could push any further. That's why I, for the sake of argument, granted you existence. Uh, nope. Well, intelligibility, from my understanding, is just the ability to differentiate between different concepts. It's the ability to intellectually understand things that's okay all right so let me, so let's ask let's ask this question then and i th i think i i think i understand what you're saying let me let me repeat what you said and you can tell me excuse me you can tell me um you said that uh even though you don't know and i'm kind of paraphrasing you so you can correct me if i'm wrong you you don't know the fundamental aspect of the way the world really is what you do know is that you can have it, it is true that the world appears to you in a certain way Right, and that gives me intelligibility. Okay, that, all right, that was good. Okay, that that's that's helpful. All right, so let's talk about um, let me talk about existence. I guess let's talk about uh, knowledge in relation to uh, the mind and the brain, because this will help me uh, understand your position. Um, when you know something, for example, the proposition things appear to me a certain way. Um, what is going on? What is knowledge in a worldview in which um, I, I, I don't want to assume, are you a physicalist in regards to uh, human beings? I don't hold to an ontology. So my view is just strictly epistemological. I think, therefore, I am, and then I can start describing things from this way. That's it. So okay. I don't actually, okay. like I right. said before, it could be the case that I am a product of reality and that my consciousness is a material process, or it could be the case that consciousness and material are two separate things, like dualism, or it could be the case that reality is a product of my mind or mind in general, like idealism or solipsism. But I don't take a position on any of those because none of those are relevant to my point. All I need to know is that I think therefore I am because whichever one of those is the case, 
you still get the same result either way. There is still some difference between my imagination and my experience in all three cases. The same difference exists. I can still say it appears to me I'm holding a cup and it's still true in all three cases. So regardless of which ontology is the case, materialism, dualism, idealism, theism, pantheism, whatever, I still get all the same stuff I've talked about. So no matter how you change the ontology, all of my epistemology is unaffected. It's still true. Yeah, I guess I'm having difficulty because unless the world is a particular way, in other words, would you say the world, it, reality is such that we can know things about reality? Well, yeah, I think therefore I am. That, that does tell me stuff about reality. Right, but that doesn't, that doesn't seem to just be epistemologically related. That seems to assume some kind of, of ontology. What do you mean? Because from my perspective, it doesn't assume any kind of ontology. Like it's, an, it's ontology invariant. So no matter how you change the ontology, that statement is still going to be true no matter what. And I gen and I genuinely I, I maybe you could help me understand this. How how does that position not presuppose any ontology when you uh, acknowledge that? Oh, I apologize. Let me clarify. Um, it does presuppose there is an ontology, but it doesn't tell us what that ontology is. So it could be materialism, it could be dualism, it could be idealism, it could be infinitely many possible things. There, it does presuppose, I guess, there is an ontology. It okay. doesn't tell us what the ontology is. So it doesn't presuppose a particular ontology, I guess. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, but I, I guess I am con I'm confused. Is that that? In other words, it seems to say you have no idea what the nature of reality is. And Correct. That's what you're saying, um, I'm challenging the whether you could actually know what you say you know to actually be the case. I mean, you believe that nature is such that we can come to know certain things, and that seems to be an ontological commitment. I, I and it, it becomes difficult to critique. Since I don't have enough information, I don't even I don't even know what I'm critiquing because on key issues, uh, which is fine. I mean, we don't know everything, of course. On key issues that would be helpful to me in furthering this kind of discussion, you're just undecided. So uh, this this would probably be you know if, if we weren't having this discussion, I'd probably want to hang out with you a little more and kind of hash those things out with you, which I'm I'm not sure we'll uh, we'll cover in the next uh, 20 minutes. Well, yeah, so, so my position is, is just, I think, therefore I am. That is the ultimate starting point. And regardless of what the ontology is, regardless of whether or not I'm a materialist, Lewis idealism, nothing can change that. It can't make it false. Like, I can't believe I exist and be wrong. It's not possible. It doesn't matter how you change the ontology. I right. It just seems to be that there, there needs to be some con ontological context in which that statement is meaningful. And, and that's where I feel as though uh, there's there's a little, uh, and I don't mean this, you know, insulting. I think there's a little waffling going on. Is that I exist, but I don't know what that means. I just I exist. It's like, well, I mean, some more information would be helpful in terms of hashing that out because I I I'm having difficulty seeing how we can understand what existence is without an ontological context in which in which existence can be defined. Because I grant for my for my for my uh, my worldview perspective. I presuppose my own existence, and I think it's foolish to deny my own existence. I understand that. Um, but I have uh, proximate starting points and ultimate starting points. My proximate starting point is my own mind, because I actually have to think about stuff in order to even reason. But my ultimate starting point is the ontological truth of the Christian worldview, which gives context and meaning um, for the idea of existence. And so, and so that's why if there is no ontological commitment, I to be honest, I wouldn't even know where to start since there's not enough information in regards to what you think about um, existence because you don't know what the I is. You say that it can be an infinite number of things, and it would be difficult to further the conversation at that point on this particular uh, topic. Well, right. So, so my position is just starting with that and staying just that one fact without saying anything about ontology. I can get intelligibility. I've yeah, got everything I, yeah. I need right there. So yeah. 
why do I need to say anything about ontology? Like ontology isn't even relevant at this point. Yeah, no, I think I think it is. I think it is relevant. Um, I just I, I think it's it's um, you know people who I speak to, and I'm not accusing you by any means of doing this because I mean I just met you, so I, I don't know about you in that way. But there are people who um, have ontological commitments, but they don't they don't voice their ontological commitments because it would give them a burden of proof that they don't want. Um, and so I'm not sure if you're doing that and I'm going to grant that you're not because you seem like a cool guy and I really do respect this conversation. Um, but it is, it is, it can be used as a tricky move to make one's own position evasive. And if, if that's the case, then it becomes difficult to communicate since I don't know where you stand on certain points and I have insufficient information to actually give my thoughts on that particular, uh, area. So if you don't know what your ontology is, then maybe we can continue a conversation later on, maybe over the phone, we can talk a little bit more about that and then kind of continue from there. And that's okay. If you, if you think, well, I, I don't know what my ontology is and I don't know if I'll ever know. Um, but you know, that's something that we can continue on later since I, we're not going to get anywhere. Cause I think we don't have, I don't have sufficient information to dig a little deeper because I'm not sure you have your, your worldview worked out in that sense, although you have your epistemology there, I think that it's connected to the ontology issue. Well, I mean, I, I tried to demonstrate it's not because no matter how you change the ontology, I still get the same results. Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't well, think so. Tell, tell me how you can change the ontology and get a different result other than well, I Well, what I'm saying, well, if you don't, that's why I'm asking, what does it mean to exist? Because if, if you don't know existence and you don't know what differentiates you from everything else, um, again, I can't, I can't even say that because you don't even know if man is purely materialist. I think I've heard in a context in which it seemed as though you did hold to that position. Um, and it seemed as though you were defending the coherency of a purely materialistic uh, ontology of a human being. Um, so I might have misinterpreted that, but it seemed as though you took a position there, which would help me so that I can kind of ask some questions. But now it seems as though you're an agnostic in regards to what you think the nature of man is. Oh, no, I definitely take the scientific, the best explanation, I think, in materialism. But I, that's not my argument here. My argument here is just that I know I, that's not your argument, Tom. What, that's not your argument, but the answer to that question will help me understand your argument better. But since you're now not taking no, 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 it's not related to my argument. It has nothing to do with my argument. It would be related to my critique of your position. That's well, what that's I'm the saying. point. If you're critiquing that, then you're not critiquing my argument. It's a straw man. <laughs> no. so, so well, I'm, not straw, I'm not straw manning you because I'm not saying that is your argument. I'm saying that's a helpful piece of information that would help me respond to the point that you're making. But since you do not hold to a position in regards to that, you don't hold to a position in regards to ontology. It, you, I, have, I, I have insufficient information for me to actually press you on anything. Because you can press me on something and be like, well, I don't have a position on that. And then you can bring something else up and I go, well, I don't have a position on that. My position's over here. And so there's not enough information to actually uh, push this forward. Well, remember, your, your objection was is that I can't get intelligibility. And I said, yes, I can. Here's how I do it. I start with, I think, therefore I am. There's some difference between my imagination and my experience. And that gives us intelligibility. Now, none of that has to do with ontology. Like, I didn't say anything about ontology there because I didn't need it. Like, that's, that's all I need to get intelligibility is I think, therefore I am. There's some difference between my imagination and my experience. So now, just with my epistemology, I have intelligibility. I've gotten it. We're good. So, so why, do you, why, so why are you looking for more? Unless, real, unless reality is a certain way. Uh, I, I don't, I, I'm having difficulty, Tom, and I do apologize seeing how you can disconnect. And I, I know the difference between ontology and epistemology, but I'm having difficult to ha difficulty how you can talk coherently about the one while rejecting the other, or maybe not rejecting it, but not seeing how they're intricately I, related. 
right? That, that's so, so, so remember, if I said I'm whole, I appear to be holding a cup. Mm -hmm. That statement is true, even if I'm in the matrix and the cup doesn't exist. If I said I'm appear to be holding a cup, that statement is true, even if I'm a Boltzmann brain uh, mm -hmm. and just created five seconds ago. If I said I appear to be holding a cup, that statement is true if we're in a theistic universe with a god. If I said I appear to be holding a cup, that statement is true if we're in a pantheistic universe. So all those things I just described are different ontologies. It could be theism, pantheism, Boltzmann brain, the mm -hmm. matrix. But no matter how you change the ontology, the epistemology, the I appear to be holding the cup, is true independent of the ontology. It doesn't matter how you can change the ontology. Can I ask a question? Sure. So when you say um, that you could be in the matrix, how does that proposition could be in the matrix? How does that not put you in a form of skepticism about a lot of things other than what things appear to you? Well, remember, your question was, is how do I uh, separate the epistemology and the ontology, right? Mm -hmm. So the ontology is what nature is. You said you, you're familiar with the distinction. So ontology is the way things are, like what, what it is to be the case. So if we're in the matrix, that's ontology. It happens to be the ontology of we, us being in the matrix or us being a Boltzmann brain or being a theistic universe. Those are all ontologies. Now, the epistemology... Can you repeat that again? Ontology is, and then you gave an example of the matrix and how things are, right? Right. So ontology is the study of what exists. So if we're in the matrix and the matrix exists and we exist in the matrix, that's all ontology. That's an ontology. Right. It's the way the world is. And if we exist as a Boltzmann brain, that's an ontology. Or if we exist in a theistic universe, that's an ontology. Now, the I appear to be holding the cup, that's true no matter how you change the ontology. You can change the ontology in any way you want. Boltzmann brain, matrix, theistic universe, pantheistic universe, just throw out ontologies. All you want will never change that statement. That statement is going to be true independent sure. of the ontology. All right. So that's okay. how I separate the two apart because mm -hmm. I can say no matter how you change the ontology, this statement is still going to be true no matter what. Yeah. All right. So that, that interests me then. Okay. So I think I understand what you're saying. Thank you for that explanation. I, um, so, so, so you're holding a cup. Okay. Now, within your worldview, what is a cup, and how do you bring together universal concepts with particulars like cups? How does your worldview account for um, particularity and universality? It doesn't at this point. All it says is that there's a difference between my imagination and my experience, and that this thing is different in some other way of some other imagined thing. Yes, but things appear to you as having differentiation between other things. Right. So I'm saying uh, an, another, another precondition for intelligibility is how you can categorize these things and bring these things together. So if you say I'm holding a cup, that presupposes um, uh, a concept of cupness in certain terms of universals uh, and things like that. You, nope. can't, you can't speak, well, what I'm saying is you can't speak of particulars, it seems to me, and you can clarify this, without presupposing universal concepts that can categorize those and bring unification in, into what you're, in regards to what you're talking about. How do you bring those together within your worldview? Well, the I can categorize them simply by my experience. Like I experienced this thing in this way, and I experienced that thing in that way. So there's a difference, and the difference is in how I experience them. I don't actually need to make any reference to particulars or, I mean, universals. Well, I, I, I'm making reference to them because those are requirements to actually give coherence to the experience that you're making differences between object A and object B. Uh, no, it's not. I'm not sure... Sure. If you're familiar with um, oh, when it's philosophies, those kinds of things where we start talking about ducks and a pond and things like that. But I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of particular ducks and the universal concept of duckness, right? right? Now, how is it that you can tell me what a duck is without bringing universals into the picture at all? 
because ducks are a concept. It's like saying um, a bachelor. What is the, the essence of bachelor? There is no such thing as the essence of bachelor. It's not a universal. It's just an arbitrary definition we've applied to some collection of things. Right. Yeah. So when I'm saying I see a cup, I'm saying I'm given this arbitrary definition of how this thing appears to me, and that's it. I'm not saying it's a universal state of nature, that there is an essence of cupness. I'm just saying what a cup is is just simply my appearance or my experience of this thing. So I haven't given it any universal value. I haven't said it has an essence. Okay, so you don't, so uh, so again, so you don't have a universal principle to categorize the differentiated things that we see in our experience? Right, because all I need for intelligibility is to be able to say this thing is different from that thing is if, insofar as I can tell. That gives me intelligibility. Hmm, it's, uh, uh, I, I don't know if I'd agree with that, but um, all right. Okay, so let, let's, let's move on there unless you have another point to make on that. Go ahead. Okay. Um, okay, so are you familiar with, and I'm sure if you're talking to, if you've spoken to, talking, people who know how to speak English. Talking. Uh, talking. I literally just made up a word. Um, so if you're familiar with speaking with um, presuppositionalists, uh, we always make a big hullabaloo about the concept of the one and the many. Now, the one and the many is uh, kind of related to the same issue that I spoke about before, is that the, the one uh, worldviews, it seems to me, require unifying principles. Uh, so as to make a uh, coherent and give meaning to particulars in our experience. So um, how do you, if you do, um, how do you within your own worldview um, have an answer to the one and the many? And I do think it is relevant to making statements about particular things in our experience. Um, well, I'd say like a ruler. A ruler is one foot long, but there's no such thing as a foot. It's just an arbitrary measure we've put on it. So I'd say this object is like one inch and this object is two inches. There isn't like an essence of inch there. It's just an arbitrary label we've placed on things. So we don't actually need the universal standard of some kind of objective measure of length. We can just make up a measure of length and then apply it to things and see how they're different. I don't see how you how you would think that we don't need a universal, um, we can say this, a, a universal concept that unifies the particulars of human experience. This seems to be one of the most important problems within philosophy. People try to answer the problem because they see how it's connected to this very issue. So to say that we just set arbitrary, yeah, that's true, but even to set arbitrary standards and categorize things still presupposes a unifying principle that can bring into unity both particulars and universals. Without the universals, you can't differentiate particulars. Well, I just did. Remember, because I have a, I have a foot. Uh, yes, a foot but, saying that, but saying that already presupposes a, a unifying principle over particulars. What is it about the nature of reality within your worldview that, that gives you a justification for doing that? It would seem as though you couldn't have one since your worldview doesn't allow you to say anything of ontological relevance. Well, what do you mean? Because I don't think it does in any way. I'm just saying I've, I've created this arbitrary length, which has no reference to universals, and I'm just going to compare things based on this arbitrary length. So there's no reference to universals there. That's just there's mere referencing universals. What I'm, in other words, how do you differentiate between a ruler and your hand? Uh, again, you have two particular things, and you need to have unifying principles to differentiate them. Well, so yeah, that's just, that's just how they appear to me. So one does not appear the same to the other. The cup does not appear. Yes. The same and way. why do they appear to you that way? I would say that that reflects some aspect of reality that needs to be grounded in something. Well, again, I'm only saying they do appear differently. Like why they appear differently isn't important because all I need to be able to differentiate them is to say they will appear differently. And then once they appear differently, I can compare the way they appear without saying anything about universals. I can still have intelligibility and differentiate between particulars without saying anything about universals. Mm -hmm. um, all right. I'll, I'll take a look at that. Can you say that last part again? 
Yeah, so um, just like I said, it appears to me I'm holding a cup. I can say and have intelligibility and describe things in the world purely based off how they appear to me and describe the particulars of the things and how they appear to me without actually saying anything about universals because I'm just using this arbitrary criterion of how they appear to me. So okay. the, the ruler appears to me in this way. My hand appears to me in this way. And so they appear differently. So I can differentiate them in that sense without any reference to universals. All right. I think I think I have that. I promise I'll look that up and see if I can grasp that a little bit more. All right. Um, I've been asking you a bunch of questions, and uh, do, do you want to ask me anything? Actually, tell me more about presuppositional because I didn't. I had I hadn't ever heard that one before. The the uh, many versus the one thing. Tell me another one. Give me another one. I like these presuppositionalist arguments. <laughs> oh, there's um, one. Are you familiar well, with Matt Slick's version, the where he says? Um, either God is sufficient to explain logic or something else is. Yeah, I don't agree. I, I think I, I know Matt Slick formulated the, the transcendental argument in a couple of different ways, some of which I didn't agree with because I think he, um, in, in one instance, he formulated the transcendental argument that didn't make the triune God the necessary prerequisite. It, it almost says like this doesn't prove the Christian God necessarily. And um, I, I know that he holds to a form of presuppositionalism that I hold. But when he formulated that argument, which became popular, and you know, I, he had a discussion with Matt Dillahunty and all that, um, I, I don't think it was as refined as I would say someone like Greg Monson or Cornelius Van Til would have expressed that. Um, but in terms of uh, getting back to what you said before, um, and I do apologize, I don't have too much time, um, so we'll, we'll, you can let me know when you're finished or if I've uh, expressed myself to your satisfaction. The one in the many problem for the Christian position is important. First, philosophically, because we do see the need for having universal overarching principles that can bring into coherence the particulars of reality. And so our ontology, we think, specifically answers that deep philosophical question because of the ontological nature of God himself. That God in his ontology has unity and particularity as equally fundamental to, him, to his very nature. And so I would say that uh, and again, this doesn't, I'm not saying this in and of itself proves the Christian God. I'm saying that Christianity has an advantage, I think, uh, that in its metaphysic, it could answer these profound questions that, that I would argue are difficult for other worldview perspectives. And of course, we'd have to iron that out, and there have been discussions on this very point. Um, but I think they are important discussions. I know some people think this whole issue of the one and the man, well, that's, you know, gobbledygook. When I listen to people critique presuppositional debates and discussion, what I see is people get angry at the presuppositionalists because we so much are talking about what these these things that seem so abstract. When in reality, when the reason why we do that, well, there's a number of reasons, is that it's very difficult to talk about specifics without talking about the undergirding principles that give coherency to those specific things. And the average person just wants to hear the facts. But I think the reason why I wouldn't give you, say, a cosmological argument is because I don't think that would be sufficient for you, given your standard of evidence, which I've heard you say uh, earlier today and, and in other contexts, that if any supernatural explanation that I give for something, you can just posit you know, some unknown naturalistic uh, explanation, in which case it would seem that there would be no evidence, specific evidence, that one can give since it would never be sufficient for you. It would seem to me that on my uh, as evaluating that standard, it would seem that the only way that God could make himself known to you is if he imposes the knowledge of who he is upon you, but then that would violate your principle of the best possible world in which if there was a God, he wouldn't force anyone to uh, to do anything. 
Um, so it seems as though you've, you've built a wall based on how I understand your perspective, but you've built a wall that in principle, God couldn't even reveal himself to you even if he wanted to. I, I, I heard you, someone asked you a question. Someone asked you a question, uh, maybe you remember. What evidence would you accept for there being a God? And you said something that if you prayed, you know, that a gold brick. Gold brick would, yeah. Right. That would be pretty cool, actually. Um, uh, then you would believe. Uh, and I thought to myself, well, that's funny. Why would you believe as a result of praying for a gold brick when you just stated that the standard is that any supernatural uh, reason that we can give, you can posit an unknown natural uh, explanation? The brick appearing in your hand, you that wouldn't be evidence for you. You would just say, there's an unknown naturalistic explanation. And so I would see from that perspective that you have a, a uh, in my opinion, an unrealistic standard of what would constitute evidence. For example, let me ask you a question. And then you can ask me a question. I'm blabbing. Well, actually, can I, can I uh, just comment on that? A few things. So the first ahead, thing is that, yes, I would be happy to believe in the supernatural if it made testable predictions. If you could predict a gold brick would appear when I prayed, that is good evidence of the supernatural. How? It would not, well, it's the same way science does. It's the way science predicts new things is by saying, if there's this new thing, I'm going to predict this consequence. If I see the consequence, that's good evidence of the new thing. So if I would, it's the exact same as science. Like if you could show that the supernatural makes future testable predictions or magic or miracles or any of those things, I'm happy to believe in any of those. How? But I wouldn't believe in an omni property. The omni properties are the hard part. Because okay. if, if you can generate one gold brick, that doesn't show that you're all powerful and can generate infinitely many gold bricks. That's a different kind of a claim. So I would be happy to believe like there is a being who created the universe that can be shown. It can be shown that uh, Jesus rose from the dead. Those are those are potentially justifiable with evidence, and I could potentially come to believe those with the correct amount of evidence. I couldn't come to believe there is an all-powerful being. Those omni-properties are the things that I can't justify, not the supernatural. I'm happy to grant the supernatural is possible. So if Jesus rose from the dead, what would that prove to you? Well, I would be willing to grant things like the that there's a supernatural, that there are supernatural beings, and they can do things, uh, and there's probably like a heaven and a hell kind of a thing. The only things I wouldn't be willing to grant is that God was like uncreated and, and couldn't have been created by another greater being, or that there aren't other gods, that makes, or that that makes no sense to me. Uh, okay, so so uh, well, first of all, you you would be misunderstanding what the concept of God is when we talk about God from a Christian perspective. Uh, you can't have a greater God since the Christian definition of God is that there is nothing greater. So to posit a greater God than the greatest would, would be an incoherent statement. Now, if Jesus rose from the dead, that wouldn't make you believe that the meaning of his resurrection is what Jesus would say that it is, right? If he was the one that predicted it, yes. So whoever makes the testable predictions are the ones who get the... Yeah, but the testable predictions can just be posited by some unknown natural explanation as to why those things occurred when those conditions were the way that they were. Oh, so you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But whoever makes the testable predictions first is the one who gets the credit. So like in physics, <laughs> the the people who predicted the the uh, delayed quantum eraser experiment was the Bohm's... What now? I'm sorry. Delayed, delayed quantum eraser. It's the one where we said that the two particles are probabilistically unset or just... Yeah, so in, in physics, in physics... In science, whoever makes the testable predictions first gets the credit. They're the theory. Their theory is the one that has the best explanation. So right now in physics, the Copenhagen interpretation is the best theory because it made the last predictions, even though every single one of the other interpretations can also explain the predictions. So the fact that it was first and it was right and it got it right, that's good evidence. Okay. That's, that's, I don't see how that's evidence because it's the first, because you could always posit an equally valid, as you would state, 
naturalistic explanation, whether it is the first or the second, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You still have barred yourself from coming to any conclusion of, as that being an evidence for the supernatural. So it's almost like you've defined the supernatural right from the beginning. So if Jesus rose from the dead, uh, that would not be enough evidence for you that Jesus was who he said he was and that the things that he taught about God, which would include everything in the Old Testament pertaining to his omnipotence, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be proven. So, so even the resurrection wouldn't prove the Christian God for you. If I, um, if I, uh, you know, prayed and the the you know the ocean split split open and we can walk through dry land like the people in the Book of Exodus, if that happened on your standard, that wouldn't be good evidence for you. If well, God, no, that, that, those, those would be good. Evidence. Those would I don't be good see evidence. how it could. I don't see how it could based on the standard of evidence. What counts as evidence? When well, you say I, I made, I made a really a fifteen minute video about the an allegory of the scientific method and how it works. You're mm -hmm. right that there are always infinitely many ways that we can explain anything. Like sure. uh, we could be in the Matrix, and that could explain everything. All of the things we've seen, all the science we've seen so far. We could we could have been created five minutes ago. We could have been that's uh, my favorite. Boltzmann brained. All of that is that is possible. But the evidence we have is whichever one of these explanations can make predictions before we know them. Because whichever one can do it before has better evidence than all the ones that can only do it after. I don't see how that how that follows at all, because if you can always give a naturalistic explanation, then it would make vacuous and any, any event being explained either by natural or supernatural. It would seem as though, who cares if, it's, if it does it before, you know, if I predicted the future, perhaps you could argue um, maybe there's some unknown principle in nature that enables beings such as humans to know certain things before they happen. And so, so what I'm saying is that standard seems like an unrealistic standard. Really, there's nothing short of God imposing his own existence upon you that would actually give you a justification on your view to believe that, that he was who he said he was. Well, and the Omni properties, that's correct. I can't believe the Omni properties. Those are out. But I can definitely believe everything else. Everything else is totally reasonable to justify with evidence. If you can if you can make a prediction that Jesus is going to rise from the dead tomorrow and show up at my door and knock on my door, that's good evidence. I will believe in the supernatural. Evidence for what? It wouldn't be evidence for, it wouldn't be evidence for Christianity since Christianity posits that it's an omnipotent God that raised the dead. Right. The Omni properties are harder. The Omni properties I can't justify, but you right. can definitely right. justify the supernatural. You can just, just, definitely justify yeah. Jesus raising from the dead. I'm, those are possible. You can definitely justify that the universe was designed by some kind of a being. The right. only things that I can't grant are those Omni properties, those infinites. Because if you said you could hold an infinitely many napkins, no matter how many napkins you show me holding, that's not infinite. That's not even a, a single percent of infinite. So you can't You'd convince be able to hold an infinite number of... Are you referring to like an omnipotent being... Right. Uh, holding an infinite number of napkins. Right, just any omnipotent thing. If you say you can do, you have infinite power in this one respect, no, ma no matter how many finite examples you give me, that's right. not going to demonstrate yeah. you have infinite an power. Infinite being holding an infinite number of napkins is an incoherent concept to me. Well, it's just it's just an analogy to try and show the... the but it's how an incoherent analogy. It's an incoherent analogy because to hold napkins requires hands. And if you have hands, you have a body and you have by necessity, limitations, and so you wouldn't be omnipotent. Well, well, the point of the analogy is to show that if you say you can do something infinitely, no matter how many finite number of times you do it, that doesn't give me even a single percentage point of reliability that you can, in fact, do it infinitely. Right. Right? So, so, so in other words, if Jesus rose from the dead, that wouldn't be enough to prove the truth of Christianity to you. Right, it wouldn't be able to prove the truth of the omnis. I can still grant everything else, but not the well, omnis. Well, you couldn't, you couldn't grant everything else because everything else is wrapped up into the nature of God and, and all these other things that he reveals. We, from Christianity, this is a very important aspect of presuppositionalism, 
is that the the, the self-attesting nature of scripture, we all all of the aspects of Christianity, especially in regards to God's nature, are essential aspects. They're they're a package deal. If you read um, you know, someone like Van Til, he says that we don't we don't prove God's existence in a piece by piece fashion. We assume the package because it's the package that gives coherency to all those other individual aspects. Um, man, very interesting. I do I do find this very fast. If you can, and I would really appreciate it if you can send me some of those specific videos and where you cover. Um, yeah, the science, the one where the science stuff. Yeah, I would really be interested in in in, uh, in taking a look at that. Well, Just dude, one, I. I want to response real quick. So my oh, idea yeah, is yeah. that if we have Christianity, we have all of Christianity, we grant that God exists, there could still be another greater being that created it oh, just right outside. So from right. my perspective, you couldn't... Yeah, well, your perspective is incoherent because if you grant Christianity, then you also grant the idea that there is no one higher than the God of Christianity. So again, that that position, like I said at the beginning, is, is, is an argument on an argument, but it's a statement that you're throwing from your worldview. And using that as something that would invalidate really the Christian worldview, Christianity would be false if there is another God greater than than the God of Christianity. So you can't, from your worldview perspective, make a valid point of saying, "Well, there could be a greater God than Christianity, even if I grant Christianity." That would be an incoherent uh, concept. I am so sorry, but I have to go. I am so sorry. I really enjoyed this, and um, I promise, you send me those links. I'll take a look at those videos. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on. I really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, I'll send you the links, and I look forward to talking to you again. All right, take care, man. And I, le I left you my my cell phone number on the Facebook page. Yep. If you ever want to run, if you if you you know look back on this video and be like, yeah, I don't know if I agree with that point. You want me to expand? You know, I'd be happy to talk on the phone and stuff. Awesome. Thanks. Well, talk to you later. All right, man. It was a pleasure. Take care. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. Uh, if you have any questions. Um, that you would like me to cover in a podcast episode, uh, please email them to me to revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Also, we very much um, appreciate your prayers, and if you wish to support Revealed Apologetics financially, uh, you can by doing so. Um, we have a, a PayPal account set up. Uh, you can um, uh, help us out financially um, at paypal.me slash revealed apologetics paypal.me slash revealed apologetics and that would be uh, greatly appreciated if, if you were able to help out financially if not um, we we definitely would appreciate uh, prayer um, and um, once again if, if you have any questions uh, that you'd like me to cover revealed apologetics at gmail.com thank you so much for listening take care and god bless